0: This episode of New Politics was released on the 3rd of June, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wongal and Wajuk people.
1: Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, one of Australia's most successful political leaders to leave politics, the high cost of government outsourcing in Australia, And the debate about the voice to Parliament gets taken over by the Conservatives. I'm Eddie Djokovic, Editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, New
2: Premier of Western Australia.
1: And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, It's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Mark McGowan has resigned as Premier of Western Australia and he's one of the most successful political leaders in Australian history. He had been the Premier of Western Australia for only six years, but he had been in Parliament since 1996 and said during his resignation speech that he was exhausted and didn't have the energy to
3: continue to do the job as Premier effectively anymore. I've loved the role. I've loved being able to to deliver on our agenda for the benefit of our state. I've loved the challenge of solving problems, making decisions, getting outcomes and helping people. But the truth is I'm tired, extremely tired. In fact, I'm exhausted. The role of political leadership doesn't stop. It's relentless. It comes with huge responsibility that is all consuming each and every day. And combined with the COVID years, it's taken it out of me. I'm convinced WA Labor can win and will win the next election in 2025. But I just don't have the energy or drive that's required to continue in the role as Premier, or to fight that election, which would have been my eighth election as a Member of Parliament. This job is like no other. After seven elections across nearly three decades, now is the right time to step away from the job that I have loved. Therefore, I will be resigning as Premier and Member for Rockingham. This week will be my final week.
1: Rare for a political leader to resign at a time of their own choosing and not through an election loss, a challenge to their leadership or a scandal, but it's happened quite a few times to state premiers in recent years. Jeff Gallup in Western Australia, Stephen Brax in Victoria, Peter Beattie in Queensland, Bob Carr and Mike Baird in New South Wales, Peter Gutwein in Tasmania. In the federal area, it hasn't happened since Robert Menzies resigned in nineteen sixty six. And all leadership has got its costs. And most political leaders age quite quickly when they're in office, there's the volume of decisions that they have to make. There's the speed of decisions. There's a pressure from the media, pressure from the electorate. There's a pressure from within your own party as well. And all of those decisions that are made affect people in the electorate in different ways. So it is an intensely difficult job and it can't go on forever. But it's probably best to leave on your own terms in politics rather than be torn down by
2: your own side or taken out in a box. It was the British parliamentarian Enoch Powell, a controversial right-wing figure. But he did say one thing that you can generally agree with, and that he said all political careers end in failure. We can probably tweak that a little to the vast majority of political careers end in failure. And with Mark McGowan, being from New South Wales, of course, I know that I thought, oh, hello, what's he done? (laughs) What scandal is going to come out? Because... Uh, when Bob Carlef some new road contracts came out, I think, or some contracts came out that didn't reflect well on what, how he might have been involved. And Mike Bed was, of course, as we saw later, a mess of all kinds of dodgy deals, and he got out before the heat got too much. So it's a bit hard to say that they went on their own terms. But it does seem that uh, Mark McGowan has gone on his own terms. He's gone out on the top. He managed to pretty much destroy the Liberal Party, in Western Australia, and it's a little bit refreshing to have that come from somebody from the other side rather than the party was destroyed from within. But he also managed to do a lot of good for Western Australia. I know that there's questions, and I'm not quite sure how serious they are or how close he was to the coal industry, etc. But certainly he left with a very high approval rating. I don't think he could have increased his majority any more but I think he would have maintained his standing at the next election had he chosen to. He was in a pretty secure spot, uh, especially considering the career he's in. But I think we have to allow for the fact that it's a, as you said, it's an exhausting job. It's a job that ages you. And it's better for him to go out on the top than overstay his welcome, like many premiers and prime ministers have done. I won't point at names, but There were prime ministers and premiers who stayed on for one or two elections too many or even one or two years too many and tainted their legacy. He seems to have avoided that. Jacinda Ardern seems to have started this too. But Jeff Gallup also stepped down at a time of his choosing for slightly or for similar reasons and it would get wearing as premier of the state doing that job. I think there's a sense in which managing a state or being the political leader of a state is a bit harder than being the prime minister. And that's because you have a lot more day-to-day stuff to deal with. And yes, you have a cabinet and a ministry, but ultimately, the premier has got to be aware of that. Whereas prime minister, it's much more seemingly weighty stuff and the rewards are a bit better and I don't just mean the financial rewards I mean you get a few more fancy dinners and you get a few more nice hotels to stay in when you're away and you get to do a few more overseas trips and stuff again if you're doing the job properly these aren't easy jobs I don't want to downplay how difficult the work can be as Prime Minister but as Premier it's a bit more I think grinding and a bit less exciting So
1: Mark McGowan was a rare commodity in political leadership. He was experienced, he was competent, he was affable, had a positive engagement with the media, he implemented a good progressive agenda in a state not known for its progressiveness and of course not everyone was happy you alluded to some of those issues before there were those criticisms of being too reliant on the mining industry and doing too many favors for the mining industry and media proprietors such as Kerry Stokes and there's also ongoing issues within the hospital system but by any measure and whichever way you look at it Mark McGowan was a very successful political leader. He managed the state's finances competently. He managed West Australia very well during the first couple of years of the COVID pandemic. In the 2021 election, WA Labor won 60% of the primary vote and 70% of the two-party preferred vote. And they also won 53 of the 59 lower house seats and the National Party was reduced to four seats and the Liberal Party was reduced to just two seats and they also ended up with the control of the Upper House for the first time ever and set up the Labor Party for at least another two terms in office. So he was, without any doubt at all, a very successful Premier of Western Australia. But once again, the mainstream media tried to play all of this down, suggesting that the only way for Mark McGowan was going to be down anyway, so that's the reason why he was leaving, that he's leaving behind a lot of problems for the Labor government to clean up and that now Labor is going to find it very hard to win the next election in 2025. The ABC decided to speak to the much discredited Senator Linda Reynolds for her assessment about Mark McGowan, so she decided to lay the boots in as well.
4: But I think what today will mark is a fundamental transformation in the politics in Western Australia, because we will go from uh, the politics of... The, the single person, the cult of the personality, uh, which has really sucked the oxygen out of the political debate in Western Australia because it has been all about one man. and That's about a and about his, to Mark McGowan. Well, it, it, it might be a compliment to him being a great politician, but it's come at the great detriment to the state of Western Australia. And there is not a single social indicator of which the state government is responsible for, whether it's public housing, health, education, uh, policing, juvenile justice, roads, there is not a single indicator that he has left things better in six years than he inherited it. Now will be an opportunity for both parties to really focus on the issues that matter in Western Australia.
1: Mark McGowan is an unusually successful political leader and he's got a massive amount of political support within the community and that's just not our opinion or a matter of opinion the evidence is there for everyone to see but in politics it's just not possible for the mainstream media to say anything good about a political leader especially when they're from the labor side of politics
2: certainly over time his legacy will settle in and we we will know exactly what he did well and what he didn't do well Probably a prime example of that is the John Howard years, where we can look with a little bit of the heat removed. What did he do well? What didn't he do well? I'm not going to enter into that. I think most listeners here would know that we'd have more in the uh, debit column than the asset column, but it takes a little bit of time to be able to look at these things a bit more objectively. McGowan was remarkable. He did stand up to some very, not intimidating, but some very noisy threats sued by Clive Palmer on because Clive Palmer couldn't make extra money during the pandemic, which seemed to be the only reason he was sued. And the case was rightly thrown out of court. And that probably is one of the factors that drove Western Australia to really despise the Eastern Liberal Party. And they cop it in the Western Liberal Party and knocking the, the Liberal lower house seats down to two. And that McGowan's managing of the pandemic, that he treated... Western Australia, like New South Wales, should have treated things like an island. There's no coming in. We are closing this down till we have it under control. And that was against a lot of opposition. And Western Australia came out a little bit better in the end, although New South Wales kept ruining it for the rest of the country. And I think, too, he left the Treasury in pretty good stead. I think the job and property situation is slightly better in Western Australia than it is in the eastern states. So at this very first flush of observation after the event, it looks like he's going to have a very good legacy and you can't ask for more. He'll probably go down as one of the great premiers of Western Australia, I think, over time, but maybe still a bit more to come out before I lock that down. But if nothing comes out, I think I'm pretty sure in that judgment that he'll be one of the great premiers.
1: And when a highly successful leader resigns, there's always going to be a void left behind. Mark McGowan at one stage had an approval rating of 91%, and that's unheard of. You know, Leaders like Leonard Brezhnev in the Soviet <laughs> Union, they used to have approval ratings of 99%, but I think those circumstances there were quite different. And his departure will cause support for the Labor Party to drop off more than likely and maybe create a few difficulties for the new Premier, Roger Cook, but... I don't think there will be enough drop-off for them to lose the 2025 election. But we also have to look at what happens when successful long-term leaders do resign. In Victoria, Steve Bracks resigns. John Brumby loses the next election. In Queensland, Peter Beattie resigns. Anna Bly did win that next election, but had a big swing against her and lost the next election after that in a landslide loss. Bob Carr resigned in 2005. And Labor had a lot of political problems over the next six years. Jeff Gallup resigned. Alan Carpenter comes in and loses the next election. And just recently, Peter Guttwine resigned in Tasmania. And now there's already problems for Jeremy Rockcliffe, who's now in a minority government. So there is very strong evidence to suggest that the support for the West Australian government will drop off. But I just don't think that there's going to be enough for the WA Labor government to lose 24 seats at the next election, but I guess anything is possible. And you alluded to this before, David, but with all of these resignations in state politics over the past 15 years or so, and the last time that it happened federally was in 1966, 57 years ago, well, it could suggest that the state leadership is far more difficult than national leadership. They've got schools to run, hospitals to run, roads to build, as you referred to before. The services that they provide seem to have a more direct link to the electorate than the federal government has. And I'm not suggesting that federal leadership is easy in any way at all, but, no. but it could be that fact that the style of leadership that's required in state politics is just far more intense and it could be the factor in so many state leaders resigning from office.
2: Yeah, I think just the grind of having to deal with putting in a new road, having to deal with extending a hospital, having to deal with social housing. These are all worthy and great things, and, and we want good people to do them, and they should be done well, and they're very important. But it's not as thrilling as meeting the king of Tonga for an official dinner or um, being asked to sit in on a security meeting with the United States and Britain, for example. And some of these things we might approve of, some of these things we may not approve of. But they're much more interesting than, oh, uh, yeah, we need to build that road. Uh, there's a waste collection issue that the local council says is ours. Our problem, not theirs. You know, And I know that, again, the Premier can delegate a lot of this stuff to his ministry or her ministry. But it's still there in the back of your mind. It's still there in a way that the issues federally are a bit bigger and a bit more interesting. But that's the way politics goes, too.
1: And there have been questions about how a change in state leadership in Western Australia will affect federal politics in Western Australia, and that's hard to know at this stage. There is a perception that WA won the election for Labor in the 2022 federal election, and time-wise that's absolutely correct because they were the last seats to be called because of the time difference in Western Australia. So federal Labor did pick up four seats in Western Australia and a 10% swing as well. They also won 73 seats in other parts of Australia. So you could argue that all of the other states also won the election for Labor last year. But I do understand the sentiment anyway. But generally, there is a difference between results in state and federal politics. There's always different issues in play. There's different characters involved. There's totally different situations. But there was a sense that federal Labor flowed in on the slipstream created by Mark McGowan in the 2021 WA election, but even if seats are lost by the Labor government in the next federal election in West Australia, it might not make too much of a difference.
2: No, I think the uh, new Premier, Roger Cook, will have challenges in trying to get the type of cut through that mcgowan had and i think that the type of popularity mcgowan had is not replicable it was extraordinary it really was and i think to the it will probably harm roger cook a little bit in that they will want him to be as popular even though there'll be a lot of commentators saying look those numbers are completely unsustainable you've got to give him time to settle in you've got to let him develop his own way of premier and then we can decide if he's as good or not politics again doesn't work like that hopefully he'll do well as premier and i know all of western australia wants him to do well and i think most of the rest of australia wants him to do well with the possible exception of sky news and news Corp. you're
0: listening to new politics You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon.
1: PwC has been under the spotlight this week and while there's a lot of astonishing details that have been released and most of this relates to leaking secret information from the Australian Taxation Office to... PwC's international clients and if you're one step ahead of the plans that the Australian Government might be thinking about in terms of multinational corporations paying more tax or changes to corporation law, well that information is like a gold mine and there are suggestions that the information that has been released is just the tip of the iceberg and there's more to come, not just from PwC but other consulting firms as well. But this brings up the big issue of government and outsourcing and in the final year of the Morrison Government, Almost $21 billion were spent on consultants and outsourcing, and that's the equivalent of 54,000 full-time staff, or 37% of the entire federal government public service, and that's quite an astonishing amount. Although the Albanese government has talked about Scott Morrison running a shadow public service and wanting to cut back on all of this, it's not a figure that can be reduced immediately. There are ongoing contracts that can't be broken, and some of these are lasting for several years, and... And there are certain areas that the government needs to approach the private sector for specific expertise, but it's time to bring back the public service back to the public service. And these figures are astronomical figures. And and as we've seen, no amount of confidentiality agreements can protect material that belongs to the federal government that needs to remain a secret.
2: You and I, I think, have both worked as consultants for government, Eddie. And, you know, I didn't get the 500 million that PwC have allegedly paid. I only got 300 million. It was a pain. It caused all kinds of issues at tax time. But anyway.
1: And I didn't make any phone calls to the British government
2: about changes to corporation law in Australia. Isn't that appalling? (laughs) But you do need external consultants, senior public servants, and even the departments can't know absolutely everything about a given problem. They can know a lot about a lot. And I think we've got to go back to having a full, fair, frank and independent public service advising. Uh, I don't know that Labor is interested in this either because it's easier to have people who will advise what you want them to advise. Now, I don't think to the level of Stuart Robert ignoring legal advice because, quote, it's just advice. But certainly it's easier if you're paying somebody very well on a contract and that contract can be ended at any time. It's easier to get the advice you want than if it's somebody on a tenure where they can't be removed for proper conduct. And it goes back to to whistleblowing. It goes back to the whole problem we've had over the last 20 years with public administration. We find out that the big four donate to the political campaigns on both sides. That should not be allowed. If you're working for the government, you shouldn't be allowed to seemingly influence the government or influence an election in such a way. Now, I know that these are private enterprises and they have the right to do what they want, sure, but there's conflicts of interests here.
1: So this has been the focus of attention during Senate hearings this week. Here's Senator Barbara Pocock asking Peter DeCure from the Tax Practitioners Board a few questions about the actions of PwC. Has the board
5: formally considered whether PwC has breached subsection 30-10-1 of the professional code to act honestly and with integrity?
6: We haven't considered that, no.
5: And why hasn't the board considered that?
6: The, we went, as we explained, we, we went through the process of investigating uh, the referral from the ATO. Um, we considered the, the evidence that we raised and we made findings um, and we imposed sanctions.
5: I think many people out there watching this, and many people in this Senate think that the kind of conspiracy that they're seeing between 50 potential people within the company, many of them partners, in the biggest accounting firm in the world, or up to their necks, it's clearly established in monetising confidential information to help multinationals minimise tax. And you're telling me you haven't decided whether PwC, you haven't considered whether they acted honestly and with integrity.
6: As I said, Senator, um, we we are currently making uh, further inquiries and it's it's a very formal process to...
5: It's been underway for
6: many years. I, I understand that, yeah. but, but we did go through a formal process and make decisions and impose sanctions.
5: Do you think Australians are uh, reasonably um, asking the question as to the adequacy, the strength of... Uh, resolve in your committee, given the failure to deal with the uh, the character of what's occurred here.
6: Uh, Senator, it's my view that we haven't failed to deal with what's occurred here. We've received a referral from the ATO, and that we dealt with that referral in in accordance with the Taxation Services Act.
5: So and why and why didn't you apply to the federal court, uh, which is also a penalty available to you, for an order for payment? of a pecuniary penalty under subsection 50C of of the Act. Why no referral to seek a financial penalty? Why no fine? Um, The average taxpayer
1: faces a fine.
6: In in this instance, as I said, we, we imposed the sanctions that we thought to be appropriate.
1: So a lot of information that's coming out of the Senate hearings is quite unbelievable and there's still a lot more to come out on this and the big issue is not just the behaviour of some of these consultants but the amount of consultants Mm. and the number of external consultancies by government has increased since the mid-1980s and this has been influenced by neoliberal thought. The anti-communist and anti-big government philosophy. There are also all of those outsourcing philosophies from Peter Drucker, which suggests that all entities should focus on what they do best and outsource the rest. But it seems that a lot of governments took this too literally and decided to sell off and outsource almost everything. And it's also a reaction to the fall of communism in 1989, where anything that resembled communism must be bad and then doing the opposite of what's bad must be good instead of adopting and adapting what was useful. So that was the transition point of outsourcing to the private sector. In Australia, the Hawke-Keating government started outsourcing more government work. There was also that enterprise model promoted by Nick Reiner in New South Wales in the late 1980s, and this was all fast-tracked by the Howard government in 1996 onwards. You could also look at the Kennett government in Victoria between 1992 and 1999. So it is a model that's been pushed by all governments, but more so from Liberal Party governments. So it's like a disease that picked up in the 1980s. But this is probably the time when that reliance of governments on the private sector needs to be heavily reduced.
2: Yeah, again, you still need consultants for a job that needs to be done once every five years, say, and you don't have the staff in the department to do it and the staff doesn't have the expertise and it takes four years or what have you, you bring in a consultant. I've written historical reports for government because there wasn't any point in having a team of historians on who may need to suddenly become experts in anything from Indigenous archaeology through to politics of education from 1860 to 1872, through to defence capabilities, through to etc, etc. That's six people, and you might only use some of those people once. So it's good to bring in consultants. Law. I know that when the Solicitor General and the Attorney General run into an area of law that they're not expert in, they call in a QC who is an expert in and pay them. During... The pandemic, some governments got into a lot of trouble for calling in epidemiologists, virologists, because they didn't have anyone on the staff. But that's fair enough. This was a 100-year pandemic. Of course, you're going to get people in from the outside. So it's all good to have the consultants. We had Suzanne Lay yesterday say it's, it's obvious that private enterprise does everything better. After the nine years we've just had, I'm not sure that it's obvious that private enterprise can do anything terribly well except in small doses. It's that pervasive thing that government is bad. Again, it comes out of American billionaires. And to a lesser extent, Australian billionaires who don't want to be beholden to OHNS or workplace safety laws, who don't want to be beholden to tax laws, who don't want to be beholden to manufacturing laws, they just want to get rid of the red tape. But the red tape is often something that is worth having because it prevents unnecessary deaths, it prevents unnecessary cuts to vital services, prevents unnecessary unemployment, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's clear that we're in a a mode of change.
1: And we've also got the situation where entire businesses have been created based on government contracts, and there's even businesses that have been created that manage the procurement of these goods and services from the private sector on behalf of the government. So there's quite a few issues that arise from all of this, and it seems that in the case of PwC, there just weren't enough checks and balances in place to... Protect the intellectual property of government and by extension the intellectual property of the public. And the big four, that's PwC, KPMG, EY and Deloitte, they received $1.4 billion in government contracts in the last financial year. PwC received $453 million of that and these big four, as you referred to before, David, they've also donated $4 million to political parties over the past decade. So that's a pretty good return on investment. But economies are sophisticated and there needs to be a wide level or a wide range of different levels of activities from public and private sector and hybrid organisations but there are so many areas where the private sector is involved where they shouldn't be. Sure there can be an argument for selling off Qantas or the Commonwealth Bank. You can still have government owned enterprises but run in a different way. Australia Post is a very good example of this. Singapore has got some very good state run enterprises and I'm not sure if we're allowed to say good things about China, but China has also got some very well managed state owned enterprises. But selling off the land titles office to the private sector, there was also that Liberal government proposal to sell off passports management to the private sector. And how would that be in the public interest? And it's good that that idea didn't proceed, because otherwise we'd probably be hearing about some sort of confidentiality scandal related to passports in the Senate hearings as well. So there does need to be a rethink about all of this, not just consultancy, but also outsourcing and all of those sort of issues, privatisation. And also about how the ethics and the intentions of the private sector are incompatible with the goals of government and in most cases not in the public interest.
2: Yeah, the government should work on the basis that it needs to do the best government work it can. Selling off infrastructure, roads, rails, Qantas, airlines, airports, the lands titles office. Why would you sell that off? It defeats me. The passport office. Who thought that was a good idea? I mean, I I know the types of people who did think it was a good idea, but these are the types of people who shouldn't be in government and now finally, thankfully, aren't. There's just some stuff that private cannot do. It's one thing to say, oh, we can nationalise the supermarkets, although given the prices in supermarkets at the moment, maybe we should, or manufacture of certain things. Okay, private probably does work better there, but certainly on infrastructure, Isn't it better for the government to build infrastructure we can all use that we already pay for through our taxes and that helps business, it helps not-for-profits, it helps individuals, it helps whatever Australian entity you can think of and visitors to the country in a good way. You're just pushing product through a system which maximises profit at the expense of the greater good for society.
1: And the issues that are now appearing in that link between PwC and government also highlights the role of the Australian Federal Police. The Australian Taxation Office provided information to the AFP about a confidentiality breach and their concerns about PwC back in 2018, but nothing was ever done. Now, there were some legal impediments and other issues at the time, but if there's some serious concerns about an arrangement that exists between the Australian Taxation Office and PwC that has the potential to undermine the Australian taxation system as well as the taxation system in other countries, well, that's something that seriously needs to be looked at, but it wasn't. The Governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, he said that he's 100% confident that PwC doesn't have access to any of its monetary policy information but based on what Philip Lowe has said in the past I wouldn't be 100% confident about anything that he says former New South Wales police commissioner Mick Fuller he does have strong links with the Australian federal police and he is now a partner at PwC why is he a partner at PwC I've got no idea but did the AFP drag their feet on investigating PwC because of that relationship that they have with Mick Fuller? There's just so many
2: questions that need to be answered here and I think they need to be answered very quickly as well. It's not a good look, even if Mick Fuller had nothing to do with it and recused himself from all of those decisions. And he may well have, let's, let's be fair. It doesn't look good. Government has to work at the very highest levels of integrity and trust. And if it doesn't... We're all in trouble and, in fact, we look at cases like David McBride, like Julian Assange, where they haven't looked at that level of trust. There are other big companies that are sneaking under the radar. Yes, PwC has done the wrong thing and should face severe consequences. What about Wilson with its contracts with Nauru? $60 million or whatever it is to house 12 people for 12 months, but not in luxury, not in comfort. Where's the balance of that money going? We don't know because uh, we're told that they've got the money and we're told what they're allowed to spend it on, but we're not told what they actually spend it on and how much they just put in their pocket and give to directors. Should it be privatised? Well, no, I don't think it should be. But if it is, surely it should be much more open and transparent as to why it was privatised and who's getting the money and what further benefits we're getting. And I know that that's a state-by-state thing too. But... We can look at some of the great infrastructure programs that the federal government might do. Who's going to get the contracts for them and why? I'm not sure that a Royal Commission is the answer. I think that we need just a knock the whole thing down, keep all the vital services going and rebuild the whole thing from scratch. Might be the way to do it.
0: This is New Politics one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can contribute and support New Politics on Patreon.
1: There's more action happening on the Voice to Parliament, and during the week, the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese delivered the Luigi O'Donoghue oration in Adelaide, and primarily pushed the idea of the Voice to Parliament, if it's successful, as a moment of national idealism. And he's also been pushing that idea that Australia can do one better than the 1967 referendum.
2: Australia has an opportunity, rarely given twice, to redefine itself as a nation. So let us not content ourselves with modest change, let us not fill our hearts with the empty warmth of the merely symbolic. Let us write the beginning of a better chapter, a chapter in which we turn hope into reality, a reality driven by the removal, as the Uluru Statement says, of the torment of powerlessness a reality in which the Uluru Statement's invitation to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future is at last accepted. Together we can do just that, and together we will.
1: Thank you very much. Now, there's a major difference between 1967 and the voice of parliament. The Liberal Party in the 1960s was radically different to the one of today which is more like a reactionary Conservative Party than a Liberal Party. And it's far easier to mobilise a campaign based on fear, loathing and hatred today than what it was in the 1960s. And it's obvious that the Federal Liberal Party was never going to support the Yes campaign. They announced that they were going to support the No campaign even before the legislation was put to Parliament. Whenever information is released, they keep misrepresenting that information. They tell absolute lies about it. Then they keep asking for more and more details and they accuse Anthony Albanese of being secretive about the voice to parliament and they're trying to harbour and cultivate the racist vote all across Australia. So they're bad faith actors in all of this and they've got no intention of supporting any sort of positive change for Indigenous Australia. They had nine years to do all of the issues that they're now complaining about and didn't do anything about them. The other issue is that many people have complained about Anthony Albanese lacking courage, being too timid on reform and not getting things done quickly enough, but they can't level those criticisms on the voice to parliament. It's exactly what Indigenous people have asked for. There are no votes in Indigenous issues in Australian politics. There's not much electorally to be gained from the voice to parliament, and this will probably cost votes for the Labor Party and for Anthony Albanese, and especially if the voice to parliament doesn't get up. But it's the right thing to do. And just because it is the right thing to do, it doesn't mean that it will be successful when the referendum arrives. And it's still early days, but it just goes to show how hard it is to convince the rest of Australia to support initiatives that will be positive for Indigenous people when there's so much conservative antagonism.
2: You get a lot of talk of, I'm worried about the secret plan for The Voice. And you say, what's the secret plan? oh, it's going to mean that they can overturn legislation. Where does it say that? Oh, it's not in any of the writing. But it's a secret, David. It's a secret, yeah. It's not written down anywhere. And, well, if it's not written down anywhere, it'll be very hard. Oh, but it'll come through. Who told you that? And then they can never quite say. And, of course, it's dog whistled through Murdoch. And, again, looking at the amount of money Murdoch has in mining, and it's really the... A lot, not all of the no campaign, is coming out of the mining industry. I'm yet to hear a cogent argument that's not to do with perhaps we should start with a treaty and then do the voice. That is an argument I can understand and accept as an argument. Nothing else makes sense. We want more details, all 270 pages, plus the Solicitor General. The Solicitor General, not the Attorney General, going through and putting through a a fairly detailed report, but an easy-to-read report that says it's okay. It'll have very little legislative power. It's just another voice. And then the latest one is, well, there's more Chinese people. Why don't we have a Chinese vote to parliament? Why don't we have a Lebanese vote to parliament? Sure. Why don't we? Except as long as the Chinese population and the Lebanese population have been in Australia and hint 1800 and about 1890, retrospectively. So a fair time. It's still quite under the 60,000 years that Australian Indigenous people. And as bad as these communities have been treated in the past, they weren't displaced. They weren't kicked off the land they owned. They weren't treated as slaves. And again, I'm not trying to downplay how badly uh, immigrants to Australia have been treated in the past. But the people suggesting a Chinese voice to parliament are often people who would also argue for less immigration to Australia, but only from certain parts of the world. And guess which parts of the world I mean? So there's that disingenuousness of it that really irritates. And it's there to waver people who maybe aren't sure of the issues, who are in favour, but you know maybe this isn't the right way to go. The voice isn't perfect. I don't think it can be. I think, too, once it gets up, and I think it will get up, that we will have to watch very carefully how it's established. We want it to be as fair and as open and as as representative as such a body like that can be. You don't want it to be the same people being part of it again and again and again with the same issues being ignored. But it's a step in the right direction, and it's better than not having one.
1: Now, in the past, we've mainly focused on what the results of the Voice to Parliament referendum will mean for the Liberal Party and for the leadership of Peter Dutton. And I think it will say a lot about what Australia is as a country and what the future pathway for reconciliation will be. If the referendum doesn't succeed, well, that's not good for First Nations people and it will be a setback on reconciliation. But a defeat on the referendum is also not good news for... Anthony Albanese. Since he became Prime Minister, he's had a pretty good run, and there haven't been too many roadblocks over the past year. But he has invested a lot in the success of The Voice to Parliament, and a loss here would be a psychological blow to his leadership, I think. And that's probably what the strategy of the Liberal Party is at the moment. It's got nothing to do with the merits of The Voice to Parliament, it's just a silly political game that they're playing with an important social reform that will be in the interests of all Australians and especially First Nations people. And we also have to remember that the voice to parliament and the Uluru Statement, that actually started off as a bipartisan act by Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten in 2015. And the Morrison government, despite all of its flaws in rejecting adding the voice to parliament to the constitution, at least it was going to accept a voice to government. But Peter Dutton doesn't even want to entertain this idea of a federal government involvement. Just this idea of little voices to little council areas, which would be so ineffective that it wouldn't have any relevance at all. So it's obvious what they're doing here. They're just playing political games. They've got no intention of achieving anything positive for First Nations people. They did nothing over nine years in government, and now they're in opposition. They just want to make sure that nobody else in government can achieve anything positive either.
2: They want to be back in government and they will do that at any cost. And I think the cost will be their own chance at getting back into government. So it all folds down on itself in a uh, typical, only the Liberal Party can do, (laughs) Uh, almost an Ouroboros, you know, the snake that eats itself. Peter Dutton is in deep trouble. Suzanne Lay, of all people, has been kind of quietly suggesting that it might be time for a change, and Peter's a great guy, but you know, it might be time for a change. went out on the listing tour that putative leaders did. I'm sure she's not the only one looking at her numbers. She's probably just the most public one. Peter Dutton knows he's in trouble. And the closer we get to a date being set for the referendum, and don't forget, we haven't had a date set yet. It will probably be around November Around the middle of November seems the most logical time. But these things do take time to set up. They might want the extra couple of weeks to make sure that all the relevant and valid information is disseminated properly, given that we haven't even called a date yet, the no campaign has been running hard. If it does get up, I don't know what it will mean for Anthony Albanese. The difference is, is that till now, no referendum has ever passed without bipartisan support. So the Australia card and the local council one in 1988 didn't get Liberal support. It was probably their first successful attempt at opposing for the sake of opposing. And part of that cost us badly. Thanks, Peter Reeve.
1: And during the week, the Prime Minister did ask how Australia will feel the day after the referendum if the voice of Parliament is defeated compared to how they'll feel if it's successful. Well, I know that Sky News will be celebrating, as will News Corporation, as as will the Liberal Party, and because they'll feel that they've landed a blow on the Labor Party, it's got nothing to do with the voice of Parliament, as Mm. I, as I said before, it's all about defeating whatever the Labor Party is putting forward. And A lot of this is protecting white authority as well. And I'm not talking about the Ku Klux Klan outfits or anything like that. But this sort of power and control appears in Australia in different ways. And there is a certain group of people in Australia that want to keep Australia as white as possible and as Anglo as possible. That's Tony Abbott, Peter Dutton, most of the Liberal Party, most of the National Party. And all of this is a failure of imagination, a failure to imagine what a positive future could be like in Australia. And it's also unleashing all of this information on the No campaign, and most of that is coming from people like Tony Abbott, trolls on the social media, Twitter and Facebook, and then there's people like Warren Mundine. And I found a snippet of Warren Mundine from 2014 when he was highly supportive of the $500 million cutbacks to frontline Indigenous support services that the Abbott government implemented and he also wanted to see an extra $600 million of cutbacks or savings as he called it and not much surprise, but he was as incomprehensive then as he is today.
0: There have been some serious concerns over over your call for $600 million in further savings. Are, are you saying that you've been taken out of context uh, Look, look every, every
7: politician and every public servant always says to take that out of context. My exact words was, if people are talking about cuts, we're talking about savings. Now, put it in the context that if I've got $500, I've been go, get told to go out and buy baked beans, I go into the first shop and they're selling it for 50 cents a can, and I see the next shop selling it for 40 cents a can... I'll take the $0.40 and that means I can buy more baked beans than I can at the $0.50. So looking at housing, for instance, we've already done modelling on the housing, is we can make a lot of savings in that area, which then can mean that we build more houses.
0: Right, so whereabouts (laughs) is that modelling being done? I mean, we've heard a lot of this, you know, duplication, overspending um, and modelling, but where where are the details that, that people can really rest that on?
7: Yeah, well look i I'm, I'm quite happy to do that, but before I, before I release those details i'm meeting with the treasurer as I said I'm meeting with the, with the, the finance minister to sit down and go through that stuff and test it now i've had, I had, I've had sat down with people who were in the private business I'm, I'm a businessman, so I know you know cuts here and there doesn't are not drastic it's about you know how you do savings and then reinvest those savings back into the system so we've done we've looked at some modeling about how you do it in housing. And we've, looked, and we've taken the experience of what, what has been done in the business world as well as what's been done in New South Wales in a number of areas, and we've come up with this modelling, and we'll sit down we'll, and we'll have that conversation. Is this well,
0: something that's been part of the Indigenous Advisory Council? Uh, now, certainly Nairi Brown has said, we don't even know how we're going to deal with the cuts that have already been announced in the federal budget, mm. and that certainly she wouldn't be looking to any other savings. Is she out of step with the council, or are you?
7: No, well, look, that I mentioned, and if people go back to when the Prime Minister first approached me in February 2013 about uh, taking up this chairmanship, I... Had said from day one, we're going to look at the inefficiencies, we're going to look at the waste, and we're going to start. But it does at seem like your other
0: council members aren't yeah, across. I'll what get you're to that in a about. second.
7: It was mentioned at every council meeting we've had that I've always was going to look at the waste and inefficiencies, and, and I was going to come back to modelling and meeting with the treasurer and meeting with the the prime minister and that, and talk about these things and go through that modelling. It's been mentioned at all our meetings, and it's been. If people go back through my media com- com- conversations over the last 12 months, it's in all of those conversations as well. We're going to cut the inefficiencies. We're going to cut the the waste and we're going to reinvest that funding back into the system.
1: Democracy suggests that we listen to many perspectives, but what sort of notice should we take of deliberate misinformation, spoilers and troublemakers? Now, as far as I'm concerned, it would be better if people such as Tony Abbott and Peter Dutton just came out and said, look, I'm voting no because I'm racist. <laughs> and yeah. At least that would be a lot more honest than what they're doing at the moment. And during the week, the Liberal Party was pushing the it's okay to vote no message, and that's similar to the it's okay to be white message that they supported in the Senate a few years ago. It's also a reflection of the people have got a right to be a bigot statement that George Brandis made in the Senate in 2014. And they've also accused Anthony Albanese of moral blackmail and trying to be the self proclaimed moral arbiter of Australia's national conscience and then you think well hang on you're the ones who are trying to say that it's okay to be white and that people have got a right to be a bigot how is that not trying to be a moral arbiter of Australia's national conscience and now they're feigning interest in improving the lives of Indigenous people and focusing on all of those issues in Alice Springs after doing nothing about this for nine years and now they're trying to play the race card in politics now you can never trust the current Liberal Party on any of these issues. If these people were around in 1967, they would have been in that 9% of the electorate who voted no. And there were 91% of the electorate in that referendum that voted yes at that time in 1967. The Liberal Party of today, they're being totally disingenuous on the voice of parliament. And if they can go as low as possible on this, they will go there.
2: And there's no low they won't go. His actions are those that you might expect someone who is racist to do. Walking out of the apology, opposing the voice, refusing to meet with Indigenous leaders. I'm not saying he's racist, but there's an old expression, if it quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, flies like a duck, it's probably not a chicken. It's a dangerous position to put yourself in in modern Australia. Racism is slowly and painfully and not as efficiently as we might like dying out the 18 to 25 cohort is much less inclined to listen to the racist dog whistle than their older counterparts and the 18 to 25 cohort just gets bigger and that cohort changes into the 25 to 35 cohort etc and their opinions aren't likely to change we've had 250 years of racism and it's slowly, slowly dying. I'm not saying it's gone. I know that there are those of you out there who are still copying it every day. But looking at the research that's been done, it's not the vote winner it was even 10 years ago.
1: That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com au we don't beg plead beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end we just keep it very simple if you like what we do please send some support our way it keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along i'm eddie Djokovic. thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners i'm david lewis
2: we'll see you next time